It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we are starting our um, sermon series going through Romans 8. We're going to be taking a journey through that for the next 10 weeks. So we won't be trying to cover everything in there today. Today it's just going to be the first four verses. Just Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. So if you would have your Bibles open and you can follow along with me. Now, in our youth group, we have a question box, which has been fairly successful over the past few weeks since we initiated it. Initially, people were a bit nervous to put questions in. Uh, We assured them it would be anonymous. We didn't have to say who had asked what questions. Um, And we've had some very good questions, including things like, uh, is it okay to believe in God, but just be scared to tell anyone you're at school with? So these are some of the things that the youth are thinking about and asking in our community. But we've also had some slightly more alarming ones, such as, what would you do if someone broke in? Do you have CCTV? Now, I do know who wrote that question. So if we have a break-in anytime soon, I think I know who it is. Even if we don't have CCTV, we would still know what house to go to. But the question that keeps coming up in various forms is, will God accept me if? Followed by a a various number of questions. Will God accept me if I've been really naughty? Will God accept me if one day I'm not straight anymore? Will God accept me if? I think this is the very question that Romans 8, 1 to 4 answers. These are the verses we're looking at. Will God accept me? And how does God accept me? I think the answer I want to give to them is, to to will God accept me is, no, unless you put your faith in Jesus. Nothing they can do will make God accept them. No matter how good they've been, no matter whether they, they... become gay or stay straight, it doesn't matter. Nothing they can do will make God accept them unless they put their faith in Jesus. And that's what we're looking at today, how God accepts us in Christ. But before that, let's backtrack a bit. As with any letter in the New Testament, it's important to know why the letter has been written. Now, there's many theories on why Romans has been written. Uh, It's a church in Rome that Paul's not been to before. It wasn't begun by Paul on a missionary journey as other churches that he writes letters to were. But it was by believers who had been in Jerusalem at the festival of Pentecost. They'd heard the apostles being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They'd heard the word that Peter had preached to them. And then they returned to Rome believing that Jesus was Lord. And there they had begun this church, which was a mix of Gentile and Jewish believers and they were learning how to form a body together. As I said, Paul has never been to this church. Some people think that maybe this was Paul's introduction to the church, that he wanted to go to the church, minister, and maybe make that as his base for his next missionary journey to get into Spain. And so he's saying, I'm Paul, this is the gospel that I preach, and you can see for yourself, because you believe the gospel too, that what I'm preaching is true. But I think it's a lot more situational than that. Like with every one of Paul's letters, he's writing to a situation that's going on. 
You see, throughout the letter, we get this tension between Jewish and Gentile believers. It seems prevalent, and I think this is the occasion that he's writing into. Initially, as I said, the church was Jewish and non-Jewish believers together. But then, at some point, Claudius had exiled the Jews from Rome. And for about five years, the Jewish believers weren't part of Rome, and the Gentile believers stayed and built a church in Rome. And then finally, when the Jewish believers returned, they find a very Gentile church that's been established. And they're trying to figure out, how is it that we do Christianity? Do we have to obey the Sabbath laws? Do we need to be circumcised? What about the food laws? What is it that we keep? What is it that Christ has fulfilled for us? How do we come together in unity to be the body of Christ here in Rome? And I think this is what Paul is writing in order to address and to unify these believers in Rome. So now Paul begins chapter 8 by saying, therefore, and I know it's cliche, but we need to know what the therefore is there for. Some people have said that in light of what's previously been said in chapter 7, particularly verses 24 and 25, when Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When he's talking about that wrestle with sin, he does what he doesn't want to do, and what he does want to do, his body doesn't do. And how will he be rescued from this this wretched man, this spirit of death? Perhaps that's what Paul is saying. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think that is true, but I think there's something bigger here. I think when we get to this point in the letter, Paul is saying, therefore, or in light of everything that he has gone through, right from chapter one, there is now no condemnation. Paul, from chapter one onwards, has been presenting the gospel He's been saying that 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 first chapter, verse 16, which I think is kind of like the, the thesis, the synopsis of where he's going in this book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But then he's gone on to show the rebelliousness of man, the way in which we're born into sin and iniquity, and how God in judgment hands us over to those evil desires of our heart. None of us are righteous. In Romans 2, he shows Israel falls into the same trap of sin. It's not just a Gentile problem, Israel, who has been given the law, who is God's special people, do exactly the same thing. This is the great equalizer, sin. None of us escape. And so we hear in chapter 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. And later in the same chapter, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the nature of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. This is what unifies us, is that we all need a savior. We're all guilty before God. In Romans 6, Paul says the wages of sin 
is death. But this isn't where the gospel message finishes. The good news is that instead of holding us guilty and responsible to pay our own penalty, Jesus came to bear that burden and as a sacrifice for our sins. So when it says the wages of sin is death, Paul follows, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That broken relationship between us and God that came from Adam's disobedience in the garden has been reconciled through Christ's obedience unto death, even death on the cross. So just as we're all equal in sin, we're all equal in Christ, who is the one saviour for all, and his sacrifice completed it for everyone who believes. In this state of victory, though, comes that hopelessness of chapter six, seven. So Paul's already talked about the victory of Christ, and yet he still wrestles with that man of sin within. We're being renewed daily, but we're still in our fleshly, sinful, fallen bodies. So how is it that the believer still wrestles with sin? Our bodies don't do what we want them to. Does this mean that we're once again condemned because of our ongoing sin? Were we free from that sin when Christ died, when we believed and put our trust, when we repented then, but now that we've, we've slipped back into sin, is it all lost? No, this is where chapter 8 comes in. In light of our sinfulness, in light of what we deserve, the judgment and wrath of God, in light of what Christ did for us and in light of our ongoing sins and failure, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious message this is. Just think about that. Today, if you believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead and is now seated in heaven, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And notice that word now. There is now no condemnation. Not there will not be any condemnation. We're not looking forward to the day when we will no longer be under condemnation. But our position now is that we're no longer under condemnation. It's not that there's something in us that is worthy of not being condemned because we deserve condemnation, but it's because we are in Christ Jesus that we are not condemned. Amen. This may not, however, be describing your experience. You may believe in Christ Jesus, but you may think, I don't feel like I'm not under God's condemnation, though. And I think this is describing something better. This isn't describing how you should feel but it's describing what your position is. This isn't dependent on whether you feel condemned or whether you feel free, but this is saying, no, you are no longer under condemnation. And Paul is gonna go on to say, now become who you are. Become people who are not under condemnation as you walk out in the spirit. If Satan is tempting you to despair, telling you of your guilt within, this still remains true. No matter what he's saying to you, you are not under condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. As Paul later explains in chapter 8, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. So who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No matter what we are going through, nothing can separate us from being seated with Christ in that heavenly place, now no longer under condemnation if we have believed in him. This is our permanent position. That word condemnation, one commentator put it as penal servitude. This idea of being in prison, going around with that heavy burden, laboring under the judgment. That's what condemnation is. It's a laboring under judgment, feeling that weight, feeling that burden. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't need to go on laboring under judgment as if we have not been pardoned. That sentence has been lifted, and it's never going to be placed on us again. Never. There is no condemnation. There is no more laboring for those who are in Christ Jesus. But now the question comes, what have we been saved from, and what have we been saved for? That's a question that Joe was asking last week when we were talking about freedom, wasn't it? Freedom from what, and freedom for what? Well, this is what Paul goes on to discuss in verses two to four. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. We've been saved from the compulsion to sin. Before we accepted Christ, before he came and died for our sake, we were bound by sin. Even if we didn't want to do it, we couldn't help but because of our sinful nature... We were compelled to sin. But in Christ, we have been saved from the compulsion to sin and for a life of holiness in him. It's not freedom from law. Freedom isn't lawlessness. Indeed, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes the man of sin as the lawless one. So freedom isn't freedom from law, but it's freedom for holiness. Paul contrasts the spirit of life who has set us free in Christ Jesus to the law of sin and death. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying the spirit of life in contrast to the Mosaic law. That's not the law that we've been set free from. It's the law of sin and death, the law which from birth compels us to sin and leads us to death because we are utterly powerless in our flesh to resist it. We know that this is not the same as the Mosaic law because elsewhere Paul describes the Mosaic law as just and holy. Indeed, um, David in the whole of Psalm 119 talks about how right and true and good 
the law of God is. Indeed, when Moses was on the Mount Sinai receiving the law from God, he received the law by the Spirit. And so how could uh, the law that God gives be a law that binds to sin and death? Instead, it reveals sin because it shows us the holiness of God. And thereby, it reveals in us how unholy, how far we've fallen, and how powerless we are to reconcile ourselves. As the hymn writer puts it, the law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and turn from sin before it's too late. To those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. The law of God reveals our sinful hearts by showing us what's good and right. But for us who have um, accepted Christ and are to be found in Christ, no longer under condemnation, it shows us the good path that we are to take. The law of God shows us what is the will of God for us to do. And the Spirit of God empowers us and enables us to do what God wants. So we're not freed from the law, but by the law of the Spirit of life, we're empowered to do what we can't do in the flesh. For Paul says that God has done what the law couldn't do because it was weakened by flesh. That is, transform our hearts. It couldn't produce righteousness in us. Indeed, the author of Hebrews says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So now, though we don't live under the law in that burdened state of penal servitude where we're under the judgment because we're being condemned by what we're not doing, we instead see the sign that the law is. I think this was an analogy Joe gave us last week as well. We see the sign and we don't set up camp around the sign. If, for example, there was a sign to say, Stonehenge this way, we don't all get out of our car at the sign and take a picture with the sign that says Stonehenge this way and say, great, I've been to Stonehenge. We go beyond the sign to the reality to which it's directing us. But neither once we've been to the reality do we then go back and pull down the sign and say, great, no, no longer need the sign, we can get there. The sign is still useful to direct and guide us. And if we go astray, to put us back on the right path. As verse 4 says here, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. Those righteous requirements of the law. He's saying that what the law requires is good. It is righteous. But we can't do it ourselves. Indeed, it's only through Christ's fulfillment of them that they might be fulfilled in us. It's still good. It's still perfect. It still reveals the will of God to us. But we have the fullness of which the law points to in Christ, God's only son. So how is it that the law was fulfilled and is now fulfilled in us who believed? Well, it's God who sent his own son, co-equal, co-eternal in the Godhead. Notice it doesn't say that he made his son, but he sent his son 
the pre-existent word. Not a created being, God himself, who came down in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that phrase might ring alarm bells for some of you, the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, does that mean that he only appeared to be human, um, as the deceitic heretics believed? But no, notice Paul is handling delicately Christology here with, with real finesse. He does not say in the likeness of flesh, which is what the deceitics believed, that Christ wasn't actually human, he just appeared to be human. But neither does Paul say in sinful flesh, which would then mean that Jesus was born in sin like any of us, and if he, was, uh, if he had that sin nature, then how could he um, save us from our sin, for he was bound by sin also? No, Paul here is showing that Christ's physical body was indeed a reality, and he looked normal. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't going around with a halo everywhere he went. He was just a carpenter, Jesus. You couldn't tell him from anyone else that you saw on the street. But in the likeness of sinful flesh, that being conceived by the Holy Spirit, not in the sin of Adam. Though he experienced the infirmities of our weak bodies, he resisted every temptation to sin that we give into. So therefore, even though he appeared like you and I, there is that vital difference of his sinlessness, which enabled him to free us from the law of sin and death. But despite this, that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, it was for sin that he came. My translation, NIV, says, to be a sin offering. That is the purpose of him coming to earth. When you think of Christmas, I think lots of people miss this fact, don't they? They like the nativity scenes, the kind of cozy glow the cows, the sheep, the little baby, the hay, maybe a star, some angels. It's, it's nice, it's comfortable. Baby Jesus seems unthreatening to them. And if they can keep baby Jesus as baby Jesus, then he doesn't become their judge or their Lord. But even in that scene, that cozy stable, he was born to be a sin offering. That was why he was there. You can't see the stable scene without seeing the cross and the empty grave. His sole reason coming to earth, being born in the likeness of sinful flesh, is in order to condemn sin in his own body, through his flesh. As we look at the babe in the manger, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the reason he didn't come to set us a good example or to be a life coach or to give us some good teaching or to be a nice guy. He didn't come to be a martyr, but being sinless, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He came to be that propitiation offering, that lamb on the sacrificial table. His blood takes away our sins. And notice how the righteous requirements of the law in what he did are fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but by the spirit. So some might say that our position outside of condemnation might encourage people to sin all the more if we've been freed from this penalty. 
But let me just ask you, is anyone here thinking, great, now I can go and get drunk and steal a car and, and kill someone? I've been freed. I'm no longer under condemnation. I can do what I want. If you are, right, I'd question if you actually are in Christ and, <laughs> and accepted his, his sin offering. No, no one who has accepted him as, as their sin offering would trample on the blood of Christ, would treat the grace of God and the blood of Jesus with such disrespect that they would say, great, I can now go on and sin all the more that grace may abound. Our position beyond condemnation gives us liberty not to sin, but to live a life of holiness. Those who use their freedom as an excuse, as the Hebrew says, crucify Christ all over again by their disregard for his sacrifice. If we walk according to the Spirit, we're not dictated by our evil passions. This walk is a continual progression in the life of holiness. No stagnation. Continual advancement by the power of the Spirit who works in us what we cannot do in the flesh. As, as Paul said in the previous chapter, we may still battle with sin, with, with temptation, with failure, but the reality of living according to the Spirit is that there is victory. We're not compelled to sin. We have the ability and empowerment to resist. Moreover, the righteousness of the law has been, has been fulfilled in us. That's a passive statement on our account, isn't it? There's nothing that we've done in order to fulfill the righteous requirement, but it has been fulfilled in us, not by us, in us, as we walk not according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. Not achieved by us, but by the obedience of Christ. And this is only true here because, as Paul says and likes to describe believers so often in his letters, and going back to, to verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can walk according to the Spirit because we are in Christ. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us because we are in Christ. We have been freed from the law of sin and death because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free who are in Christ. That is our position, in Christ. That is our covering that frees us from the condemnation and judgment of God. As we believe in him, his death and resurrection, by faith, his death becomes our death. His life becomes our new life. We're united with Christ, and therefore, since in him the punishment was taken, it's as if we have borne our punishment already. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. I heard a story where during the wartime, um, a man was called up for conscription and someone said, I volunteered to go in his place and serve his penalty for him. And so this person was accepted, they went to war, and as they were in war, they died. Well, a few months later, this man got another letter calling him, uh, him up to fight. But he, he went to court because he said, I've already, as it were, died in battle because someone took my place. And my place, that man is dead. Therefore, I can't go and fight again because, as it were, I am dead in the eyes of the law. And this is kind of what our position is like in Christ. He came, bore the penalty for us, 
served the, the price that we had to pay and therefore we can't be called up again because he has done it for us. Our death is his death. His resurrection life is our new life. His righteousness is our righteousness. But before I close, the alternative is also true. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it follows that those who aren't in Christ Jesus are still under the condemnation of God. And that should be a sobering thought for us. We've contemplated on the joy and the glory of our position, but the sobering reality is that those who aren't in Christ remain under the condemnation of God. Even the best people fail. No one by their own efforts can ever please the holiness and righteousness of God. As Isaiah says, our righteousness is as filthy rags before the righteousness and holiness of God. They're serving that penal servitude, laboring under the judgment, and nothing they can do, no matter how hard they work, will ever mean that the sentence will be lifted. Without accepting by faith the sacrificial death of Christ on their behalf, they will face the judgment and penalty for sin themselves. And you know, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone in the Bible. He was warning, if you don't repent, if you don't accept my blood which cleanses you, this is what will happen. Can you think right now of friends, families, colleagues, people you know and love who are under the condemnation of God because they're not in Christ? Does your own secured position and their hopeless state not compel you to share the good news of the gospel with them? God says he doesn't want any to perish. We can glory in the reality of our life in the spirit as Paul expresses in this verse. But as we walk according to the spirit and in obedience to the spirit, part of that obedience is to fulfill the great commission, isn't it? To go and make disciples, teaching them all I have taught you, and I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Let us not pass by those who are dying for lack of knowledge. Let us not be so secure in our own estate that we won't make ourselves uncomfortable to go and rescue others from the condemnation. I was listening to a testimony of a lady this week who said she would rather hurt the hairs on her hand be singed from snatching people out of the fire than to not put herself at risk at all. Let us share that good news with them as we have received it. As I close, would you stand with me as I pray? Merciful and just God, we thank you that you did not spare your son, but you willingly laid him down for us and for our salvation that we might live and be free from condemnation. Lord, we thank you that our position is secure because you have paid the price in yourself and that we may now live for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father God, we ask that you would continue to enable us to walk according to your spirit in obedience to your will.
and we pray for boldness to share your good news with many so that they may enter your kingdom and be saved from that condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen.